Section 12 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Playing Bear, Herrings, Jim Wolf and the Cats. Written about 1898. This was in 1849. I was fourteen years old then. We were still living in Hannibal, Missouri, on the banks of the Mississippi, in the new frame house built by my father five years before. That is, some of us lived in the new part, the rest in the old part back of it and attached to it. In the autumn my sister gave a party and invited all the marriageable young people of the village. I was too young for this society and was too bashful to mingle with young ladies anyway. Therefore I was not invited, at least not for the whole evening. Ten minutes of it was to be my whole share. I was to do the part of a bear in a small fairy tale. I was to be disguised all over in a close-fitting brown hairy stuff proper for a bear. About half-past ten I was told to go to my room and put on this disguise, and be ready in half an hour. I started, but changed my mind, for I wanted to practice a little, and that room was very small. I crossed over to the large unoccupied house on the corner of Main Street, unaware that a dozen of the young people were also going there to dress for their parts. I took the little black boy, Sandy, with me, and we selected a roomy and empty chamber on the second floor. We entered it talking, and this gave a couple of half-dressed young ladies an opportunity to take refuge behind a screen undiscovered. Their gowns and things were hanging on hooks behind the door, but I did not see them. It was Sandy that shut the door but all his heart was in the theatricals, and he was unlikely to notice them as I was myself. This was a rickety screen with many holes in it, but as I did not know there were girls behind it, I was not disturbed by that detail. If I had known, I could not have undressed in the flood of cruel moonlight that was pouring in at the curtainless windows. I should have died of shame. Untroubled by apprehensions, I stripped to the skin and began my practice. I was full of ambition. I was determined to make a hit. I was burning to establish a reputation as a bear and get further engagements. So I threw myself into my work with an abandon that promised great things. I capered back and forth from one end of the room to the other on all fours, Sandy applauding with enthusiasm. I walked upright and growled and snapped and snarled. I stood on my head. I flung handsprings. I danced a lubberly dance with my paws bent and my imaginary snout sniffing from side to side. I did everything a bear could do, and many things which no bear could ever do 
and no bear with any dignity would want to do anyway. And, of course, I never suspected that I was making a spectacle of myself to anyone but Sandy. At last, standing on my head, I paused in that attitude to take a minute's rest. There was a moment's silence, then Sandy spoke up with excited interest and said, Ma Sam, has you ever seen a dried herring? No. What is that? It's a fish. Well, what of it? Anything peculiar about it? Yes, sir. You bet you day is. Day eats em innards and all. There was a smothered burst of feminine snickers from behind the screen. All the strength went out of me, and I toppled forward like an undermined tower, and brought the screen down with my weight, burying the young ladies under it. In their fright they discharged a couple of piercing screams, and possibly others, but I did not wait to count. I snatched my clothes and fled to the dark hall below, Sandy following. I was dressed in half a minute and out the back way. I swore Sandy to eternal silence, then we went away and hid until the party was over. The ambition was all out of me. I could not have faced that giddy company after my adventure, for there would be two performers there who knew my secret and would be privately laughing at me all the time. I was searched for, but not found and the bear had to be played by a young gentleman in his civilized clothes. The house was still and everybody asleep when I finally ventured home. I was very heavy-hearted and full of a bitter sense of disgrace. Pinned to my pillow I found a slip of paper which bore a line which did not lighten my heart but only made my face burn. It was written in a laboriously disguised hand, and these were its mocking terms. You probably couldn't have played bear, but you played bear very well, oh, very, very well. We think boys are rude, unsensitive animals, but it is not so in all cases. Each boy has one or two sensitive spots, and if you can find out where they are located, you have only to touch them and you can scorch him as with fire. I suffered miserably over that episode. I expected that the facts would be all over the village in the morning, but it was not so. The secret remained confined to the two girls and Sandy and me. That was some appeasement of my pain, but it was far from sufficient. The main trouble remained. I was under four mocking eyes, and it might as well have been a thousand for I suspected all girls' eyes of being the ones I so dreaded. During several weeks I could not look any young lady in the face. I dropped my eyes in confusion when any one of them smiled upon me and gave me greeting, 
I said to myself, that is one of them, and got quickly away. Of course I was meeting the right girls everywhere, but if they ever let slip any betraying sign I was not bright enough to catch it. When I left Hannibal four years later the secret was still a secret. I had never guessed those girls out, and was no longer hoping or expecting to do it. One of the dearest and prettiest girls in the village at the time of my mishap was one whom I will call Mary Wilson, because that was not her name. She was twenty years old. She was dainty and sweet, peach-blooming and exquisite, gracious and lovely in character. I stood in awe of her, for she seemed to me to be made out of angel clay and rightfully unapproachable by just any unholy, ordinary kind of boy like me. I probably never suspected her. But the scene changes to Calcutta forty-seven years later. It was in 1896. I arrived there on a lecturing trip. As I entered the hotel, a vision passed out of it, clothed in the glory of the Indian sunshine, the Mary Wilson of my long-vanished boyhood. It was a startling thing. Before I could recover from the pleasant shock and speak to her, she was gone. I thought maybe I had seen an apparition, but it was not so. She was flesh. She was the granddaughter of the other Mary. The other Mary, now a widow, was upstairs, and presently sent for me. She was old and gray-haired, but she looked young and was very handsome. We sat down and talked. We steeped our thirsty souls in the reviving wine of the past, the pathetic past, the beautiful past the dear and lamented past. We uttered the names that had been silent upon our lips for fifty years, and it was as if they were made of music. With reverent hands we unburied our dead, the mates of our youth, and caressed them with our speech. We searched the dusty chambers of our memories, and dragged forth incident after incident, episode after episode, folly after folly, and laughed with such good laughs over them, with the tears running down. And finally Mary said, suddenly and without any leading up, Tell me, what is the special peculiarity of dried herrings? It seemed a strange question at such a hallowed time as this, and so inconsequential, too. I was a little shocked, and yet I was aware of a stir of some kind away back in the deeps of my memory somewhere. It set me to musing, thinking, searching. Dried herrings? Dried herrings? The peculiarity of dry—I glanced up. Her face was grave but there was a dim and shadowy twinkle in her eye which, 
all of a sudden i knew and far away down in the hoary past i heard a remembered voice murder dey eats em innards and all at last i found one of you anyway who was the other girl but she drew the line there she wouldn't tell me but a boy's life is not all comedy much of the tragic enters into it the drunken tramp mentioned elsewhere who was burned up in the village jail lay upon my conscience a hundred nights afterward and filled them with hideous dreams dreams in which i saw his appealing face as i had seen it in the pathetic reality pressed against the window-bars with the red hell glowing behind him a face which seemed to say to me if you had not given me the matches this would not have happened you are responsible for my death i was not responsible for it for i had meant him no harm but only good when i let him have the matches but no matter mine was a trained presbyterian conscience and knew but the one duty to hunt and harry its slave upon all pretexts and on all occasions particularly when there was no sense nor reason in it the tramp who was to blame suffered ten minutes i who was not to blame suffered three months the shooting down of poor old smar in the main street at noonday supplied me with some more dreams and in them i always saw again the grotesque closing picture the great family bible spread open on the profane old man's breast by some thoughtful idiot and rising and sinking to the labored breathings and adding the torture of its leaden weight to the dying struggles we are curiously made in all the throng of gaping and sympathetic onlookers there was not one with common sense enough to perceive that an anvil would have been in better taste there than the bible less open to sarcastic criticism and swifter in its atrocious work in my nightmares i gasped and struggled for breath under the crush of that vast book for many a night all within the space of a couple of years we had two or three other tragedies and i had the ill luck to be too nearby on each occasion there was the slave man who was struck down with a chunk of slag for some small offense i saw him die and the young californian immigrant who was stabbed with a bowie knife by a drunken comrade i saw the red life gush from his breast and the case of the rowdy young brothers and their harmless old uncle one of them held the old man down with his knees on his breast while the other one tried repeatedly to kill him with an allen revolver which wouldn't go off i happened along just then of course 
then there was the case of the young californian immigrant who got drunk and proposed to raid the welshman's house all alone one dark and threatening night this house stood halfway up holliday's hill and its sole occupants were a poor but quite respectable widow and her blameless daughter the invading ruffian woke the whole village with his ribald yells and coarse challenges and obscenities i went up there with a comrade john briggs i think to look and listen the figure of the man was dimly visible the women were on their porch not visible in the deep shadow of its roof but we heard the elder woman's voice she had loaded an old musket with slugs and she warned the man that if he stayed where he was while she counted ten it would cost him his life she began to count slowly he began to laugh he stopped laughing at six then through the deep stillness in a steady voice followed the rest of the tale seven eight nine a long pause we holding our breaths ten a red spout of flame gushed out into the night and the man dropped with his breast riddled to rags then the rain and the thunder burst loose and the waiting town swarmed up the hill in the glare of the lightning like an invasion of ants those people saw the rest i had had my share and was satisfied i went home to dream and was not disappointed my teaching and training enabled me to see deeper into these tragedies than an ignorant person could have done i knew what they were for i tried to disguise it from myself but down in the secret deeps of my troubled heart i knew and i knew i knew they were inventions of providence to beguile me to a better life it sounds curiously innocent and conceited now but to me there was nothing strange about it it was quite in accordance with the thoughtful and judicious ways of providence as i understood them it would not have surprised me nor even overflattered me if providence had killed off that whole community in trying to save an asset like me educated as i had been it would have seemed just the thing and well worth the expense why providence should take such an anxious interest in such a property that idea never entered my head and there was no one in that simple hamlet who would have dreamed of putting it there for one thing no one was equipped with it it is quite true i took all the tragedies to myself and tallied them off in turn as they happened saying to myself in each case with a sigh another one gone and on my account this ought to bring me to repentance the patience of god will not always endure 
and yet privately I believed it would. That is, I believed it in the daytime, but not in the night. With the going down of the sun my faith failed, and the clammy fears gathered about my heart. It was then that I repented. Those were awful nights, nights of despair, nights charged with the bitterness of death. After each tragedy I recognized the warning and repented, repented and begged, begged like a coward, begged like a dog, and not in the interest of those poor people who had been extinguished for my sake, but only in my own interest. It seems selfish when I look back on it now. My repentances were very real, very earnest, and after each tragedy they happened every night for a long time. But as a rule they could not stand the daylight. They faded out and shredded away and disappeared in the glad splendor of the sun. They were the creatures of fear and darkness and they could not live out of their own place. The day gave me cheer and peace, and at night I repented again. In all my boyhood life I am not sure that I ever tried to lead a better life in the daytime, or wanted to. In my age I should never think of wishing to do such a thing, but in my age, as in my youth, night brings me many a deep remorse. I realize that from the cradle up I have been like the rest of the race, never quite sane in the night, when Injun Joe died, but never mind. Somewhere I have already described what a raging hell of repentance I passed through then. I believe that for months I was as pure as the driven snow after dark. Jim Wolf and the Cats It was back in those far distant days, 1848 or 49, that Jim Wolf came to us. He was from a hamlet thirty or forty miles back in the country, and he brought all his native sweetnesses and gentlenesses and simplicities with him. He was approaching seventeen, a grave and slender lad, trustful, honest, honorable, a creature to love and cling to, and he was incredibly bashful. He was with us a good while, but he could never conquer that peculiarity. He could not be at ease in the presence of any woman, not even in my good and gentle mother's, and as to speaking to any girl, it was wholly impossible. He sat perfectly still one day. There were ladies chatting in the room, while a wasp up his leg stabbed him cruelly a dozen times, and all the sign he gave was a slight wince for each stab and the tear of torture in his eye. He was too bashful to move. It is to this kind that untoward things happen. My sister gave a candy-pull on a winter's night. 
I was too young to be of the company, and Jim was too diffident. I was sent up to bed early, and Jim followed of his own motion. His room was in the new part of the house, and his window looked out on the roof of the L Annex. That roof was six inches deep in snow, and the snow had an ice-crust upon it which was as slick as glass. Out of the comb of the roof projected a short chimney, a common resort for sentimental cats on moonlight nights, and this was a moonlight night. Down at the eaves, below the chimney, a canopy of dead vines spread away to some posts, making a cozy shelter, and after an hour or two the rollicking crowd of young ladies and gentlemen grouped themselves in its shade, with their saucers of liquid and piping hot candy disposed about them on the frozen ground to cool. There was joyous chafing and joking and laughter, peal upon peal of it. About this time a couple of old disreputable tomcats got up on the chimney and started a heated argument about something. Also about this time I gave up trying to get to sleep and went visiting to Jim's room. He was awake and fuming about the cats and their intolerable yowling. I asked him, mockingly, why he didn't climb out and drive them away. He was nettled and said over boldly that for two cents he would. It was a rash remark, and was probably repented of before it was fairly out of his mouth, but it was too late. He was committed. I knew him, and I knew he would rather break his neck than back down if I egged him on judiciously. Oh, of, of course you would. Who's doubting it? It galled him, and he burst out with sharp irritation. Maybe you doubt it. I? Oh, no, I shouldn't think of such a thing. You are always doing wonderful things with your mouth. He was in a passion now. He snatched on his yarn socks and began to raise the window, saying in a voice quivering with anger, You think I doesn't, you do. Think what you blame, please. I don't care what you think. I'll show you. The window made him rage. It wouldn't stay up. I said, Never mind, I'll hold it. Indeed, I would have done anything to help. I was only a boy and was already in a radiant heaven of anticipation. He climbed carefully out, clung to the window sill until his feet were safely placed, then began to pick his perilous way on all fours along the glassy comb, a foot and a hand on each side of it. I believe I enjoy it now as much as I did then, yet it is nearly fifty years ago. The frosty breeze flapped his short shirt about his lean legs, the crystal roof shone like polished marble in the intense glory of the moon. The unconscious cats sat erect upon the chimney, alertly watching each other, lashing their tails and pouring out their hollow grievances, 
and slowly and cautiously Jim crept on, flapping as he went. The gay and frolicsome young creatures under the vine canopy unaware, and outraging these solemnities with their misplaced laughter. Every time Jim slipped I had a hope, but always on he crept and disappointed it. At last he was within reaching distance. He paused, raised himself carefully up, measured his distance deliberately, then made a frantic grab at the nearest cat, and missed it. Of course he lost his balance, his heels flew up, he struck on his back, and like a rocket he darted down the roof, feet first, crashed through the dead vines, and landed in a sitting position in fourteen saucers of red-hot candy in the midst of all that party, and dressed as he was. This lad who could not look a girl in the face with his clothes on. There was a wild scramble and a storm of shrieks, and Jim fled up the stairs, dripping broken crockery all the way. The incident was ended, but I was not done with it yet, though I supposed I was. Eighteen or twenty years later I arrived in New York from California, and by that time I had failed in all my other undertakings, and had stumbled into literature without intending it. This was early in 1867. I was offered a large sum to write something for the Sunday Mercury, and I answered with the tale of Jim Wolf and the Cats. I also collected the money for it, twenty-five dollars. It seemed overpay, but I did not say anything about that, for I was not so scrupulous then as I am now. A year or two later Jim Wolf and the Cats appeared in a Tennessee paper in a new dress as to spelling. It was masquerading in a southern dialect. The appropriator of the tale had a wide reputation in the West and was exceedingly popular. Deservedly so, I think. He wrote some of the breeziest and funniest things I have ever read, and did his work with distinguished ease and fluency. His name has passed out of my memory. A couple of years went by, then the original story cropped up again and went floating around in the original spelling and with my name to it. Soon first one paper and then another fell upon me vigorously for stealing Jim Wolf and the Cats from the Tennessee Man. I got a merciless basting, but I did not mind it. It's all in the game. Besides, I had learned, a good while before that, that it is not wise to keep the fires going under a slander unless you can get some large advantage out of keeping it alive. Few slanders can stand the wear of silence. But I was not done with Jim and the cats yet. In 1873 I was lecturing in London in the Queen's Concert Rooms, Hanover Square, 
and living at the Langham Hotel, Portland Place. I had no domestic household on that side of the water, and no official household except George Dolby, lecture agent, and Charles Warren Stoddard, the Californian poet, now professor of English literature in the Roman Catholic University, Washington. Ostensibly, Stoddard was my private secretary. In reality, he was merely my comrade. I hired him in order to have his company. As secretary, there was nothing for him to do except to scrapbook the daily reports of the great trial of the Tickborn claimant for perjury. But he made a sufficient job out of that, for the reports filled six columns a day, and he usually postponed the scrapbooking until Sunday. Then he had forty-two columns to cut out and paste in, a proper labor for Hercules. He did his work well, but if he had been older and feebler it would have killed him once a week. Without doubt he does his literary lectures well, but also, without doubt, he prepares them fifteen minutes before he is due on his platform, and thus gets into them a freshness and sparkle which they might lack if they underwent the stalling process of overstudy. He was good company when he was awake. He was refined, sensitive, charming, gentle, generous honest himself and unsuspicious of other people's honesty, and I think he was the purest male I have known in mind and speech. George Dolby was something of a contrast to him, but the two were very friendly and sociable together, nevertheless. Dolby was large and ruddy, full of life and strength and spirits, a tireless and energetic talker, and always overflowing with good nature and bursting with jollity. It was a choice and satisfactory menagerie, this pensive poet and this gladsome gorilla. An indelicate story was a sharp distress to Stoddard. Dolby told him twenty-five a day. Dolby always came home with us after the lecture and entertained Stoddard till midnight. Me too. After he left I walked the floor and talked, and Stoddard went to sleep on the sofa. I hired him for company. Dolby had been agent for concerts and theaters and Charles Dickens and all sorts of shows and attractions for many years. He had known the human being in many aspects and he didn't much believe in him. But the poet did. The waifs and estrays found a friend in Stoddard. Dolby tried to persuade him that he was dispensing his charities unworthily, but he was never able to succeed. One night a young American got access to Stoddard at the concert rooms and told him a moving tale. He said he was living on the Surrey side, and for some strange reason his remittances had failed to arrive from home. He had no money. He was out of employment and friendless. 
His girl wife and his new baby were actually suffering for food. For the love of heaven, could he lend him a sovereign until his remittance should resume? Stoddard was deeply touched and gave him a sovereign on my account. Dolby scoffed, but Stoddard stood his ground. Each told me his story later in the evening, and I backed Stoddard's judgment. Dolby said we were women in disguise, and not a sane kind of woman either. The next week the young man came again. His wife was ill with the pleurisy. The baby had the bots or something. I am not sure of the name of the disease. The doctor and the drugs had eaten up the money. The poor little family were starving. If Stoddard, in the kindness of his heart, could only spare him another sovereign, etc., etc., Stoddard was much moved and spared him a sovereign for me. Dolby was outraged. He spoke up and said to the customer, Now, young man, you are going to the hotel with us and state your case to the other member of the family. If you don't make him believe in you, I shan't honor this poet's drafts in your interest any longer, for I don't believe in you myself. The young man was quite willing. I found no fault in him. On the contrary, I believed in him at once, and was solicitous to heal the wounds inflicted by Dolby's too frank incredulity. Therefore, I did everything I could think of to cheer him up and entertain him and make him feel at home and comfortable. I spun many yarns, among others the tale of Jim Wolf and the Cats. Learning that he had done something in a small way in literature, I offered to try to find a market for him in that line. His face lighted joyfully at that, and he said that if I could only sell a small manuscript to Tom Hood's annual for him, it would be the happiest event of his sad life, and he would hold me in grateful remembrance always. That was a most pleasant night for three of us, but Dolby was disgusted and sarcastic. Next week the baby died. Meantime, I had spoken to Tom Hood and gained his sympathy. The young man had sent his manuscript to him, and the very day the child died the money for the manuscript came, three guineas. The young man came with a poor little strip of crepe around his arm and thanked me, and said that nothing could have been more timely than that money, and that his poor little wife was grateful beyond words for the service I had rendered. He wept, and, in fact, Stoddard and I wept with him, which was but natural. Also, Dolby wept. At least he wiped his eyes and wrung out his handkerchief and sobbed stertorously and made other exaggerated shows of grief. Stoddard and I were ashamed of Dolby and tried to make the young man understand that he meant no harm. It was only his way. The young man said sadly that he was not minding it. His grief was too deep for other hurts. 
that he was only thinking of the funeral and the heavy expenses which we cut that short and told him not to trouble about it leave it all to us send the bills to mr dolby and yes said dolby with a mock tremor in his voice send them to me and i will pay them what are you going you must not go alone in your worn and broken condition mr stoddard and i will go with you come stoddard we will comfort the bereaved mamma and get a lock of the baby's hair it was shocking we were ashamed of him again and said so but he was not disturbed he said oh i know this kind the woods are full of them i'll make this offer if he will show me his family i will give him twenty pounds come the young man said he would not remain to be insulted and he said good-night and took his hat but dolby said he would go with him and stay by him until he found the family stoddard went along to soothe the young man and modify dolby they drove across the river and all over southwark but did not find the family at last the young man confessed that there wasn't any the thing he sold to tom hood's annual for three guineas was jim wolf and the cats and he did not put my name to it so that small tale was sold three times i am selling it again now it is one of the best properties i have come across end of section twelve playing bear herrings jim wolf and the cats written about eighteen ninety eight